This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Thank God I got that right. And today our show is all about sex, art and literature. Now there is a fizzy Sunday morning cocktail for you. Who says we're not an eclectic health show? First up, we will be chatting with Dr. Bruce Bolan from the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, you'd think government agencies are all stuffy and conservative, but then they go and release the Victorian Sexual Health Service Review, and their image morphs into hipsterish and an obeying kind of a place to work. Bruce is the Chief Preventative Health Officer of the department, and he'll be telling us all about the Sexual Health Service Review why the government is interested, and just what they're going to do about it. Next up, we'll be delving into the art world. If you have ever visited the DAC Centre, you'll know the kind of art they exhibit there. It's powerful, emotive, and the kind of stuff that you talk about for long after you leave the place. Shemaine Smith is the director of the DAC Centre, and Jesse Brooke-Dowsett is an artist and therapeutic arts practitioner. Shemaine and Jesse will be joining us to talk about the latest exhibition at the centre entitled Stigma. Dismantled, Revealed. And they'll be telling us about how you can meet the artists and get involved with the DAX Centre. Now, if you have even casually glanced at a weekend magazine lately or perused a literary journal, as I do, you'll know our next guest, Caro Llewellyn. She's directed major writers' festivals, been close personal friends with uber-famous authors and spent a while as a Marxist for a good measure. Caro has penned a corker of a memoir, Uh, entitled Diving Into Glass. Great title. And uh, if it ain't on the top 10 bestseller list in the next month, I will eat my copy of the thing. Seriously, I will. It's a real page turner, so we are thrilled to have Caro in the studio to talk about it and her really quite incredible life. Co-hosting the show with me today are two of the most savvy health professionals around. Nurse EpiPen has sent it all in her four plus decades, four plus decades, yeah, in the hospital world. And Dr. G-Spot is an NHMRC scholar and re- and researcher at the uh, MAPRC. There's too many acronyms here. Um, and uh, she has forgotten more psychology than most of us remember, and she still knows more. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. That tune never grows old. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Robert, father. So to attach a voice to a name uh, in the studio, we have... Doc- is it Dr G-Spot? Professor G-Spot? Have you risen in stature? I wish Dr G-Spot for now. Dr G-Spot. PhD. That's right. PhD. 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 <laughs> NHMRC scholar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that voice you're hearing now is from Nurse EpiPen. Somebody said to me, oh, you're EpiPen. <laughs> And I said, yes. And they said, I thought you were an allergist. EpiPen. Oh, EpiPen. But it's from, because I've got a training in epidemiology and my first name is Penny. It it is one of the best uh, nom de plumes. So nom de plumes. Great. (laughs) Did they recognise you by your name or? Both. Both. And voice. And voice, yeah. And uh, Dr. Bruce Bolland, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having us in. Well, now we're going to hop straight to it. Um, The Victorian... Sexual Health Service mm. Review. Tell us 
what that is and how it started. Yeah, so I mean, the main thing is that um, most people kind of think about sexual health, uh, not very much. You know, they, they kind of take it for granted. Like many things about our health, you know, we only really think about it when it goes missing, yeah. when, we, mm. when we've got a problem. And the problem here, of course, is the rate of sexually transmitted infections, particularly. There's a lot of different things about sexual health, and we want to obviously promote good health. It's good for our well being, and good sexual health is a key component of that. But when you get an unpleasant infection, of course, all sorts of things can go wrong, mm. uh, both in the short and long term, and not just for you, but also for, of course, for your sexual partner or sure. partners. And we've got the highest rate of STIs that we've ever seen in this state. Um, we've seen a trebling of rates of some of the whoa, 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 key whoa, whoa, things whoa, 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 whoa. in the whoa, whoa. last um, <laughs> couple of years. Well, well, just... You know, command bold, <laughs> underline, the highest rate of sexually transmitted uh, illnesses or diseases. Well, the highest number of cases, for sure. This last year, we saw the highest number of STIs that we've ever seen in the state last year. So, yeah. so give us the names of the STIs. So some of the key ones in there, yeah. and one of the most common is chlamydia. Um, yeah. And that's uh, often, for many people, seen as a relatively benign infection. But some of the much more significant uh, ones in the public mind, and certainly things that we think of as having put to bed back in the 1940s and 50s, for example, syphilis, gonorrhea these are all on the rise and in a really significant way um so over the last 10 years or so we've seen three or doubling in those uh, t- three or four times or even five times an increase in the rates of those transmitted uh, within the state and that's fairly typical of australia and indeed internationally we're seeing a huge rise in some of these infections you know when i was at medical school you know a couple of weeks ago they <laughs> said uh, now this is like you know two three, three decades ago um you know, our lecturers would say to us, oh, look, this is syphilis, this is what it was like in the old days, but mm. you guys won't have to know too much about it because it's really on the decline. But to hear it's doubling and tripling, that's astounding. But it's it a bit more in a certain population, though. It is, yeah, for sure. There are parts of the community which are yep. much higher risk than other parts, yep. and, and particularly men who have sex with men, yep. uh, people involved, obviously, in sex work, yep. Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, yep. some culturally and linguistically diverse groups, younger people, there's broadly higher rates. So it certainly isn't evenly spread, but... Yep. You know, the key thing with STIs is, weirdly enough, they are incredibly non-discriminatory. They don't, they don't <laughs> care about your age, your sex, your yeah. gender, anything like that. Yeah. Uh, you can, everybody contracts them the same way, and they are a, a considerable concern to public health. Yeah. And therefore, you know, in my role as Chief Preventive Health Officer in the department, uh, we've got a very close optic on the epidemiology. It's lovely to hear that word on a radio show. We love our epidemiology, the bedrock of public health. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that's that's what's the driving the review, really. And what do you put down this increased rate to? What are the factors that go into that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different things happening at the same time. You know, we are getting changing rates of uh, condom use. We're seeing changing patterns of resistance in the disease. You know, so, for example, antimicrobial drug resistance makes a difference to some of these conditions. Um, and more broadly, you know, we're seeing demographic change too. So the population continues to change and evolve. And cr- the most critical element, I guess you could say, is that... M- all of these infections are behaviourally mediated, i.e., you know, if people don't see that there's any risk there and they're engaging in, in, in multiple sexual partners or in risky sexual practices or they're just not thinking about their sexual health, they're potentially putting themselves at higher levels of risk. Mm-hmm. Tell us about condom use. Well, condom use is absolutely the bedrock of controlling the transmission of sexually transmitted infections. Yeah. And, um, you know, what's driven a lot of improvement there has been uh, particularly, um, frankly, a bit of a, a fear of STIs, and in particular of the most prominent of those, uh, HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. And that has driven a real improvement over a number of decades in condom use. But you may or may not know there's been some amazing steps forward in both treatment and prevention 
infection of HIV, uh, mm. which really is incredible. And just literally the other day um, was the publication of the second ever cure of HIV of a patient through stem cell uh, th- stem therapy in, in the US. And what? a truly astonishing outcome. So you know, we really are seeing my PhD supervisor started his PhD at the time of the beginning of the epidemic. Mm. You know, within his working life, we're starting to see a total transformation. But one of the sad knock-ons of that is people again are starting to assume mm, that yeah, these conditions yeah. are controllable. There's, mm. no, there's no harm with them. Mm. And, you know, we can't reiterate enough. In the last few years, we've seen the return in Victoria of congenital syphilis. Now, mm. what that means is it's transmitted by mother to child and through that, you can lead to not only major neurological long-term damage to the infant, mm. but even potentially death. Now, this is something that is entirely preventable mm. through uh, identification, through testing, through treatment and control. Mm. And, of course, that starts with public awareness of, mm. the, of the issues. Yeah, so, like, uh, Bruce, what should we actually try and do about this? As you were saying, mm. and going off conversations I've had with my friends, you're right, they think, well, I can just go get some tablets for this. It doesn't really matter. So what can we do to, to stop the spread? Yeah, I mean, and the key thing here is many of these conditions are symptomless, but just because they're symptomless doesn't mean that they're harmless. Nothing could be further from the truth. The bedrock, really, in many respects, is firstly condom use from a prevention perspective, but also then getting regularly tested. And that could be every, you know, every period your GP could advise a sexual health clinic could advise on your individual profile but obviously if you're engaging with new partners or a new partner um, if you're uh, you know otherwise in one of those risk groups that I mentioned before around men who have sex with men or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander populations more regular testing is advisable and then of course you can pick it up and then you can get it treated. And would you like to give a plug for the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic? Absolutely. I mean, our bedrock here, and this is one of the things I found out through the process of the review I never realised. The Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic, based at the Alfred, is the the principal and major provider of free, confidential, anonymous and highly specialised sexual and reproductive health, but particularly sexual health skills in the state. And it was originally established, evidently, in 1917 under the Siemens Act. (laughs) <laughs> no, no pun intended. No pun intended. This is what I understand through the process of the review, because obviously at that time there was a major concern with you know, people coming into coming into port and, and, and needing to control uh, the transmission of sexual health issues. But the key thing here is over the last few years there's been a doubling of presentations to the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic. Yeah. So we've seen an unprecedented rise on the back of this changing epidemiology, and really that has provided us, uh, you know, in the department with a strong driver to then go, hey, you know, we really. Need need to think more systematically across the state um, to think about you know, how do we address these epidemics. I just need to um, correct you there, it's not at the Alfred, it's under the Alfred. Oh sorry, but under it's in the Swanson Alfred. Apologies, Street. apologies. Yes, yeah. in Swanson yeah. Street. Thank you very much. Um, you were talking, Bruce, before about it's a behavioural change which mm. has led to this increased rate of STIs. Um, and you, you kind of hinted at what might be behind that behavioural change. Do, mm. do you think it's kind of a forgetting or a not remembering or you weren't even there when these things were such a scourge? Yeah, I mean, certainly for the generations coming through, yeah. you know, like for me, you know, coming coming through secondary school yeah. when the HIV epidemic was yeah. really in, it, in its full throttle uh, mode, that it, there was a really high level of... Yeah. 
fear and I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing because yeah. it brings a lot of stigma and discrimination yeah. with it too but yeah. in this instance it did drive a different attitude towards condom use mm. and I think that as I say that's the bedrock of, of say sex, sexual health um, that alongside testing I mean I remember when I was at I worked at Fairfield Hospital years ago when it was still around and there were all these fantastic public health um, posters like Captain mm. Condom and I mean <laughs> stuff you wouldn't imagine seeing yeah. in a hospital Absolutely. and it was just great because it just became normalised like condoms yeah. are normalised, you know, yeah. and you use these, you know, and, and discussion about it um, was something that you just did. And, mm. you know, one of the questions that uh, EpiPen was telling me was on the health survey was, um, was it when was the last time you talked to your GP about your sexual health? And I said, I wasn't, I, I never have. I mean, I never, <laughs> I mean, probably in the wrong demographic, but it's it's something that you're, you're trying to get yeah. people to think about. Exactly so, yeah. because you just can't assume uh, that you're that you that you're not at risk potentially, or yeah. that you've got a symptomless infection. Yeah. So, Bruce, say I'm you know off to my mm. GP and I'm worried about my sexual health. Do you think it's up to the GP to bring it up, or should I bring it up? How how might we even start this pretty awkward conversation? Yeah, I mean, well, hopefully, I mean, certainly your GP has got a background and training in sexual health, so you can feel confident that your information would be treated confidentially and anonymously. Uh, but obviously, it's also the onus is slightly on the patient, as your question <laughs> alludes to, I think, a little bit there, because if you don't ask, you can't get. And, and clearly, when you're doing a health assessment, any GP doing a health assessment should be asking questions about somebody's sexual health, and that should provide an opportunity for a conversation. And it, that starts with testing. Yeah. Bruce, any final words about uh, the survey or where people can go to uh, get a look at it or to to actually... do it. Yeah, so we would love to hear about all Victorians' experiences of sexual health services, including people who use them currently or people who haven't ever used them before. We want to know how to make our services more relevant to the community. And the best way to do that is to Google uh, engage.vic.gov.au and you'll find the Engage government website. And uh, if you search in there for sexual health, the sexual health service review will come up and there's a sequence of questions. Please do go online and make your voice heard. Thank you so much. Oh, Bruce and Bond. you've got till the 28th of March. March. Indeed. Thank you very much. She's doing my job for me. Terrible. Thank you very much, Perry. Thank you. <laughs> She's all over this. Thank you, Perry. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Bruce Ball. Three Triple R. You are listening to 3 Triple R. This is Radiotherapy. You are listening to uh, Dr. Mel Practice. That's me. Uh, nurse EpiPen is inju- who's adjusting the microphones. You can hear a slight little squish, squish, squish there. And also um, Dr. G-Spot, who has lowered her chair. If only this was a visual medium, you'd be laughing your head off. Um, we are so pleased to have uh, with us in the studio... Uh, Charmaine and Jessie from the DAC Centre. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. Now, I was just uh, talking to you both about the DAC Centre and uh, and how much I enjoy... Actually, I've, I've been there probably, know, probably a dozen times. Um, just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. So at the DAC Centre, we use art to really um, enhance and, and, and um, improve our um, understanding of mental illness through art so it's about trying to take away um, stigma it's about trying to have a conversation about mental health problems that isn't necessarily about a diagnosis it's not about the stats but it's about what's actually going on for the person and I guess trying to keep um, trying to create that heart-to-heart link between two people um, and from that we can build a really deep understanding of what it's like to have that um, lived experience and who I mean who 
was Dax? I mean, w- w- yeah. tell us about yeah, this so person. Dr. Dax, um, he was he came across to um, Australia in the 1950s to be what was then the head of the Mental Health Hygiene Authority. So even from yeah. that term, you can see that yeah. we've come a long way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when he came in, there were probably uh, there were several um, psychiatric. Um, institutions across the state and in that role he was um, in charge of those and what he saw at the time when he came in was conditions that were fairly poor Um, people were not well treated um, and one of the things that he did to try and improve that was he introduced um, art therapy for for um, people in those Institutions. Oh, I didn't know that he introduced art therapy. Mm. Oh, right. But he also collected art as well, didn't he? Yes. So then what happened was, as I guess people that were living in those um, institutions um, created the art, they actually became part of the patient's file. And then when the um, hospitals closed down in the 1980s, people didn't know what to do with the art and unfortunately a lot of it was um, going to get thrown out. Dr Dax heard about that and he literally salvaged about 8,000 pieces of art from the bins, which brings with it a fistful (laughs) of ethical problems (laughs) because we don't necessarily know who um, the artists were. They haven't given us... Um, the rights to have that art. We yeah. don't have the story behind it. Yeah. So, you know, the the artist's voice isn't kind of coming through from the artist. Yeah. We're having to kind of um, interpret it. So while it's amazing that it got saved yeah. and there are incredible stories to tell, and I think through that art we can now give those artists a voice that they didn't have, we have to be very careful um, and mindful how we use that art. And what an interesting phrase, a fistful of ethical issues. That's great. I'm going to start using that one. Um, it, it, isn't it the largest collection of, of art from uh, patients in the world or one of the largest? In the world? Southern Hemisphere, yes. Yeah. Oh. So it's one of three in the world yeah. um, and the largest in the yeah, Southern he- Hemisphere. hemisphere. Yeah. Yeah. It's also used, I, I know, for uh, the front covers of some of the psychiatry journals. Yes, it is. Um, so whenever I get a journal, often there's a beautiful piece of artwork which is quite evocative and relates to the content and it in a small way, personalises the stuff, the scientific stuff that, that we're reading about. Exactly. And that is our aim, is to yeah. sort of, you know, the the science is there and we need that. But I think even, if I can be so bold, bold to say even more than the science, yeah. we need to know what it actually feels yeah. like for the person. Yeah. Um, and that needs to be a kind of um, the centre of everything that we do. So. Jesse, um, tell us about your role in the DAX and, and, and how art has been part of your life. Sure, sure. So um, the DAX invited me to um, be the artist in resident. Yes. Um, so it, it, it has just meant that I've spent um, five weeks in the space developing a body of work that will be displayed. Um, but another part of that is um, developing a community engagement pro- um, project. So I've worked with anybody that's come through the gallery. We've done small weavings together and spent time doing those sort of weavings with metal and found objects. And then all of those smaller pieces um, I've integrated into a larger installation sort of representative of um, ways of connecting and weaving stories and narratives and and time basically together. Yeah. So is it is it weaving is your principal form of... It's community? actually not, oh. no. <laughs> so um, my um, principal form is gestural abstract painting. So I use my, um, my body and my senses and uh-huh. materials 
um, as a conduit to kind of explore where I'm at and my experience and um, those sorts of things. Yeah. So, so I mean, I've, granted, this isn't a visual medium, but no. so <laughs> <laughs> that seems very esoteric. <laughs> how do we how do we paint that picture for the listeners about what for the listeners? Yeah. So. Um, Really, I layer paint and medium and um, marks on paper and canvas uh, using a colour and movement, really. So it's it's very kind of abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, best way is to yeah. come and see it. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll yeah. get to the exhibition in a minute. Um, so, Jess, do, Jessie, do people come to the centre that have had depressive illnesses or... Um, they're unwell and come and draw and paint. Is that what the purpose of the DAC Centre is? Um, at the moment, it's a it's a, a gallery space, so there's already artworks that are up on the wall being displayed. Um, and I think that uh, m- my presence there has allowed a little bit more of that making in the space, um, which has been great. And there uh, there seems a need for it that. Um, way of connecting through art and and what that stimulates in a conversation as well um so yes it's allowed so people have kind of come into my space and i've given them material and they've picked up different bits and pieces and just sat for short or long periods of time and contributed to this larger installation um and yeah it's been it's been really great actually yeah it's so great to have artists on the on the show my dad was was an artist um for a long time and uh you know, I was the the scientist in the family, and I just I just didn't get it. And then um, he took me. We went overseas once, and he tried to explain art to me. And I really, well, I just said, "Tell me the top ten famous artworks in the world, Dad." And he he said, "No, it's not what it's about, son. It's not. It's about feeling. It's about mm. feeling." Yeah. And I didn't get it until I saw uh, a Rothko. Yeah. And so, for people who haven't ever seen this, it's basically two colours on a very, very big canvas and it's the interface between the two colours which is quite captivating and for some reason it's just so emotive. Yeah, and I think that's what art can do. It can allow us to share our humanity. So art has a way of speaking to things that language, like verbal language, just doesn't have Um, and it can relate topics and make people feel and connect with each other Um, Yeah, in a really profound way. I know um, child psychiatrists use paintings, children's drawings to Mm. help them talk about what they're feeling and there's a lot that can be done with pictures and how they draw things that their world can be very different and things can be one-sided, like a human can have two arms on one side and it's all about what they're feeling and use it as a medium to discuss their feelings when they can't quite get the words. Yeah, definitely. I think often um, you feel things in a much stronger way that you can actually even talk about and I think that art has a way of putting it outside of your body to start with so it, it moves these big emotions and feelings or difficult things that we feel like we can't talk about. It moves it kind of externally from our body so it puts it out of us in a contained way um, and I, I, I think it... Um, it also has a way of kind of giving people ownership over their own story and narrative. Um, so um, they can choose what's important to them. They can choose the medium and the way they'd like to express that um, and, 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 yeah, how that, how that needs to be conveyed for them. It's, it's funny you should use the word narrative because um, our next guest, Carol Llewellyn, reading her book, one of the things she talks about it is her father requiring a narrative mm. to explain his illness. And yeah. it's one of those things where... All, it's almost implicit in, it, in us, isn't it, that we're just looking for ways to explain stuff through mm. a story. Or explore stuff, yeah. you know. It's it's a way, I, I think, 
there is that sort of need for people to um, connect with other people and share a narrative. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, we learn about ourselves in connection to other people um, in that sort of space that you create with other people. That's, That's kind of where you get into a space where you maybe relate to something or you are able to see a little bit more of yourself and yeah. um so i think yeah narrative plays a big role in that but i think it can come in so many different forms mm-hmm. and i think that's what's so important about um using the arts art visual but arts in general you mm. know whether that's drama or music mm-hmm. or all those sorts of things is um is having a space where you can kind of really own that what do, I mean, you're, you use art therapeutically. I'm going to ask you a scientific question now. Okay. Um, <laughs> what what proportion of what you do do you think? So, what percentage do you think to to be therapeutic? Do you think is the actual forming the art um, compared to the end product? Uh, so, I actually put no focus on the end product. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm a trained therapeutic arts practitioner yeah. as well, um, and I really feel like it's the um, the process of doing something. Yeah, yeah. Do you think? Um, I mean, how do you? What do you, as, a, as an arts therapist, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what how you how you draw inside somebody to mm. get those feelings that are that often don't have words to to make them into art. I mean, what do you what do you say to somebody? Um, I I just invite someone to allow them to be. Um, so. It, I really don't feel like there needs to be much drawn out. I think that it's so ready to come. Um, and um, one, the biggest thing that you kind of have to get over is is someone's inhibition towards making right. in the first place. That's, I think that's the first thing that anyone has said to me in the gallery. Oh, I'm just, I'm just not creative. Yeah. But if you can invite someone to just focus on, look, it's really not about what it looks like at the end. I'd just like to, you, to invite you to be part of the process and engage with the process. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's the flood. It's like a floodgate that opens um, and people just engage really, really readily in their own yeah. and they find their own way of doing that. Yeah. I was going to ask about that first step because I've um, been fortunate to do some art therapy with mental health patients and they will say, just as you said, I'm crap at art. Yeah, yeah. So how do you get them to just take that very first step is it just go just draw something just like just do it a dot on the paper like because that was my biggest challenge I think yeah I think it is a really huge barrier I think people kind of leave um, the arts to a creative selective few and I just my view is that everybody is creative we're all creative in our everyday everything that we do has some level of creativity to it um, so yeah it, it is just that line and um to never push but to just sort of say look this is just an invitation um this there's all these materials here have everything kind of open and look does anything sort of speak to you just make a mark see how it feels to start mm. yeah so what i hear you saying is, is giving people permission yeah yeah i mean it just it just echoes i was in a ward uh, in a medical ward recently and um, one of the things that instituted in this very, very busy medical ward was um, 10 minutes of mindfulness for the staff. Mm. So you've got 24 staff standing around a really busy ward and um, the the mindfulness practitioner just says, I'm just giving you permission. Do it, don't do it, just yep. permission. And, it's, and everybody just did it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, 
And, and that's shared experience too of doing it with yeah. other people? I mean, is that how you do art therapy with other, like a group or individually or...? Uh, both, actually. Yeah. I think that there's, yeah, there's <clears throat> a lot that can be done in both contexts. I think when you work in a group, you have the opportunity to learn more, a lot more from the other yeah. people in the group. Yeah. There's something that kind of special happens in that sort of space. Um, so even people who feel really, um, feel it's really difficult to uh, communicate um, their own way of being, sometimes they will listen to somebody else saying something and be like, Yes, that makes sense to me too and learn a little bit more about themselves in that context. And then one-on-one, I think, you know, has another level of scope. You know, you have a closer kind of um, relational um, thing that develops there. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are listening to 3RRR Radio Therapy in the studio me, Dr. Malpractice. There is Dr. G-Spot, Charmaine, and Jessie from the DAC Centre. And reading her notes is Nurse EpiPen. I really wish we should really put a webcam and just, lock, and just show people what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, um, ladies uh, from the DAC Centre, you've got a new exhibition coming up. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we opened uh, on Feb 15, so we've been open for a few weeks now. Yep. Um, and Jessie's with us until the 22nd, end of this, this week. coming weeks. Yep. Yeah, so we have three more days um, in the gallery with Jessie, which we're pretty excited about. And we're open today. So we're not normally open on Sunday. Oh. So this is a special day for everyone to get down. There's free afternoon tea. Uh, you can make art with um, Jessie. And there's music as well from the Artful Dodger Studio. Uh, tell us whereabouts you are located again, you yes. did say. So we're on a 30 Royal Parade in Parkville and we're in the Kenneth Meyer Building or the Brain Centre. Uh, you just come in off Royal Parade, um, straight to the back of the building and you literally bump into the Duck Centre. Yeah, it's kind of opposite the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Is that exactly. The, yeah. Perfect, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the exhibition you're going now is Stigma. Um, why choose that as a topic? Yeah, well, I guess one of the big reasons we chose that is that uh, the Duck Centre and SANE um, merged uh, in April last year, so nearly a, a year ago, and the key goal of both organisations is to um, reduce stigma towards mental health issues. So for us, this is a really important topic. Um, stigma stops people from... Um, getting help. Um, Self-stigma is still a huge um, problem that we need to overcome and fight. So it just made sense to make this the focus of our first kind of joint program together. And was this new art created for the exhibition or was it some old art you've, you've, you've All new art, yeah. Right. So um, the seven artists have done have done new work. Um, so it's work that hasn't been seen before. And yeah, I'd have to say it's pretty impactful and pretty beautiful. So. And what do you say to, to artists? Do you say, you know, give me something on stigma? Or I mean, how do you encourage them to... <laughs> we did. We kind of did. We Should have been call out. <laughs> it was a bit like that. We're kind of like, okay, how do we do this? Because, you know, it's also like we're also asking people to share a part of their story. So we're not only asking them to create art and share that, but we're also saying share a part of your story, which is personal. Yeah. So it is kind of a big deal. Um, so we, But we did go out and kind of say... We want to tell a story about stigma we want to tell that story through art um come and tell us if you'd like to be part of that so we had about 40 artists um who did say that they would like to be part of it and from that we had to choose seven which was really really difficult yeah, because how do you choose this? 
Look, it's a curatorial thing, so it was sort of about ensuring that all of the art pieces work together to tell uh-huh, a uh-huh. bigger story, yeah, so yeah, that was yeah. one big piece yeah. of it. Um, yeah, so it was a really tricky process because all of what we saw was magnificent. And yeah, because it's often a thing with, um, uh, I guess, those kind of exhibitions or even um, uh, contests that it may not be the particular artwork itself it is, but it's it's how it fits into the broader picture and, exactly. and what you're trying to say. So I guess those artists that didn't get a gig, I mean, it's not so much about what they've produced, it's the broader picture often as well. Absolutely. How it works with all the other little bits and pieces too. Yeah. Um, well, um, I'm going to get along to say, how, does it cost anything to... to, to no, totally nothing at all. Yeah. And did I hear one of you say that... You, people can paint as well or be involved as well, Jessie? Yes, definitely. So come along. I'll be there weaving today, so you can come along and make some small weaving things. Okay. We've also designed an activity um, which is really accessible for families, so if you've got young kids, bring them in. There's a really great little project they can do whilst they're there, and I'm pretty sure there's food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's cake food. food. <laughs> 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 mm. So if you're not going to the Grand Prix... Come and eat some food and look at some art. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much to the two of you coming in. That's Charmaine and Jessie from the DAC Centre, which is on Royal Parade opposite the uh, Royal Melbourne Hospital. Get along today. Get involved. It really is such a great institution. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Cheers. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Radiotherapy 3 R In the studio is Nurse Epi Pan, Dr G Spot, me, Dr Mel Practice, and we are so chuffed to have Caro Llewellyn in to talk about her book, Diving Into Glass. Hi, Caro. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Wow, you must have been on a whirlwind sort of tour lately, promoting and talking about the book, yeah? I have, and it's been quite quite something. I was absolutely astounded that people actually wanted to talk to me about this book. <laughs> you know, you spend 15 years of your life writing, and then actually people want to talk about it, which has been really very nice. Um, I think my publicist at Penguin Random House is a genius. Um, <laughs> I opened, I, she said to me, you know, you're going to be on in Who magazine. I didn't even know Who magazine was still existing. And anyway, yeah, so it's been quite a wonderful thing. I think it was an amazing piece of timing that the wonderful actress Selma Blair came out and uh, did her red carpet thing and has come out and talked about MS. So I think that she has done a lot to raise awareness about Mm -hmm. the disease and the illness, and I think people are a little curious. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's been quite a journey. Mm. So the book's called Diving Into Glass, and for the few people who haven't started reading it, tell us a bit about what the book is about. So the book started out, so my father was um, 20 years old when he was contracted polio and it was after the introduction of the vaccine, so it was kind of an anomaly, I don't know if I can say that word at whatever (laughs) time it is on Sunday morning, and uh, and so the story was really about his, his... you know, a kind of adventure because he saw it as an adventure. He was in an iron lung for a year and he met my mother and she was a nurse and they got married and then they had two children and then he did it all over again with a, with a second wife, um, my stepmom, and had two more children. So really I just wanted to tell his story because it's a remarkable story in the 1950s when there was no, you know, there were no carers, there was no discriminatory discrimination laws, people were referred to as cripples and, you know, it was a pretty dark time to be saying hey I want to be seen and I want to contribute to society mm-hmm. and he fought very hard to do that um, so I wanted to tell that story and then my own 
catastrophe happened and so I felt like I had to tell weave that story into it um so that's the basis of the book the basis of the book is really about also about how um you know I had a father who was never angry never bitter never why me never anything like that and yet when I got sick all I could think was why me <laughs> this, is so, crazy. this is so unfair so I I was very badly behaved and um and I needed to work out how to get to a better state state of grace yeah I mean one of the most astounding things that well the, well, the first astounding thing was that I found in your book was that you, your dad managed to flirt with and then um marry uh, your mum, all this, fr- fr- and he was in an iron lung. Yep. I mean, that was. Uh, he had big blue eyes yeah. and he was very charming. And no, <laughs> that both is true. Both of those things are true. But I think he sat there and he thought, I have two options. Uh, One is I can work out. There was no, there was no, you know, there were no options for people other than he was to go home and live with his parents for the rest of his life or that he would go to their home for incurables, which mm-hmm. is what it was called then. And so he thought, well, if I. I need to get another option available to me. So I think I should be very, very, very charming and try and find a very charming woman who's very adventurous and is up for a crazy ride um, to go on this journey. And, you know, lucky fate had it. He found the right woman. She found him and off they went. Yeah, and as you said in the book, you, she, your mum, established that your dad could have an erection and could have kids, which was that's, – that's a good thing for their marriage – Yes, that's a good thing about being somebody's nurse. I think you, you, you right? Yeah. You're a nurse, EpiPen. Uh, you find out things about people, and um, and so she knew that very important. I think important fact about him that that was that bit of the ninety five percent of the rest of it didn't work, but that was in the five percent that did. So that was a good thing. And uh, I'm one of those book nerds that underlines passages. I mean, I'd hate to admit that on radio, but I am. And um, so I brought in my copy of the book. One of the things that your dad kept saying was not why me, but why not me? And you mentioned that a couple of times. Yeah, because I think I think if you think why me, you it, it automatically puts you in a position of feeling resentful and defensive and, you know, that you're victimised. Mm-hmm. And if you come at from the other way, just that extra word, why not me, it is, well, it's got to be somebody, why not me, mm-hmm. so I'm just going to do the best I can here, and it's not, it's not, it's not a personal thing, you know, it's not, it's not something that I brought upon myself or somebody has decided to do this, this is just random bad luck, yeah. and so why not me, so then you can, then you can get on and build a life, I think. Have you read Lee Sales' book, An Ordinary Day? No, I have not. But actually, I almost wanted to... I was calling my book for a little while there. Uh, I changed titles about 100 times, and Diving Into Glass was the constant. But I kept thinking, oh, maybe there's something better, maybe there's something better. And in the front, there's a Joan Didion quote, um, yes. And I was actually thinking about calling it um, The Ordinary Instant. But then Lee's, Lee beat me to the beat me to the post but actually i'm very happy with diving into glass i think that that was my instinct was right it's it's a great image for a title tell us why you chose that title there's a scene in the book so i don't know if listeners know uh adelaide but the sea is very very flat yes we have an adelaide person sitting next to you dr g spot good for you (laughs) i knew i was gonna like you anyway the sea is very flat and um and my father was dying i had been up all night with him injecting morphine into his mouth and uh and i was pretty haggard anyway i went for a swim it was very very 
flat and still and quiet and I dove into the water and I thought, oh, it feels like I'm diving into a mirror or glass. And then my own stuff happened and I realised that actually it's a little bit like you walk into a plate glass window and that window, that 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 glass is your life and it lays suddenly it lays in shadows at your feet and you have to work out how you're going to put it back together put the pieces back together to get something of a resemblance of your former life or a different kind of life but a, a life it must be a bit of like a raw shark test for people when you say to them or when i would say to them what do you think that title means because i had a very different uh, impression I, I i imagined it well not different so different but kind of like the pain and suffering of, of coming to that diagnosis in your life falling apart and what it feels like almost physically because glass hurts glass cuts and with the ms do you get pain and, and things like no oh, well, weirdly <laughs> no weirdly it, you don't well i didn't yeah. i think one of the things that Selma Blair said on her, her interview was that this is a snowflake disease, and I had never heard that before. What does that mean? Uh, it means that everything, everybody's presentation oh, is different, right. and that is very true. And so I don't have any, you know, in, when I was first diagnosed, I had the opposite of pain. I had numbness. Mm-hmm. Couldn't feel my legs at all. Now I have, I can, I'm hitting my legs. I can feel my legs, um, but they don't work very well. So it just, it changes and yeah, I don't have pain, but I think other people do have pain um, and we all present very differently and the, and the, and the, the present, the prognosis of the disease is different for all of us too. So, you know, I could be like this for the rest of my life, walking with a stick and, but, you know, able to get around and do things, or I could be, wake up tomorrow and not be like that. And I've been worse, you know, I had six or two years ago I was in a lot worse state than I am now and so there are things that you can do well things that I've been able to do and that is a lot of exercise and physical therapy and that's very helpful for me but I don't know if that's helpful for everybody Uh but I think they think that one of the things that they do know about MS is that um, exercise helps certainly came out in the book that it did for you I have a question about you growing up as a young child and pre um people being respectful of people in wheelchairs and handicapped people, what it was like as a child to go around with your dad in a wheelchair and, you know, your feelings around that? I think when I was a little kid, you know, when I was really little, I didn't I didn't have any, any idea about it. I just thought my dad was normal and for me, I, you know, he... It was strange. It's a strange paradox that actually his disability meant that we had a much closer relationship. As a kid, he was just around all the time. So, you know, I got to hang out with him in a way that my friends' parents, the the friends didn't have that opportunity with their fathers because they were working. My father was working, but he was working from home. And so I had that wonderful opportunity and experience with him. But when I became, when I went to high school, it was really different. I didn't want him to come to parent-teacher nights. I did not. I wanted him to stay home and for my friends not to know about that I had this freaky-looking guy in a wheelchair who was my dad because I felt that that, you know, that I would be stigmatised, which I had been, you know, and I was. Um, But, you know, thankfully that didn't last all that long but I know and it's not something I'm proud about but you're a kid so I do excuse myself you know and I think times have changed now and my little brother and sister um with uh, their mum Becky she said I'm never gonna let my kids do what you kids did to to your father um 
And so, you know, my dad was the coach of my little brother's cricket team, which is ridiculous because my <laughs> father couldn't do anything. But he could, he could talk and he could give instructions. And so he liked to do that a lot. So, you know, yeah, they had a very different experience. He, he did seem to be very good at giving instructions because he'd say, this is the patio I, I built, this is the, uh, the tomato plants I planted. And it was almost as if he did them, but of course he didn't. He had people doing it for him. He directed them really well. He was a, a very directional father. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I have to struggle mm. with not being a directional parent or a directional <laughs> human being, but I am a little bit directional. Uh, but no, it was part of the thing that he had that was enabling him to... Uh, to feel that he was contributing mm-hmm. and we just all went along with it mm. you know he would sit there like exactly like you said and he you know there would be a new pergola built you know and the, the big poles in the ground and the things and the pea shoots all over the ground and he and he would own it completely he'd say i just built this and you'd see people going you did not build that there is no way but we would all just play along with yeah yeah dad it looks amazing you're amazing yeah and tell us about the level of function that he had i mean it was just one arm or he had um so he eventually got back polio is a funny disease because it comes in waves and you have a thing called post polio syndrome mm. which comes later so you can he could roll his own cigarettes which was a very smart thing for a person who's got 95 <laughs> percent disability and whose lungs don't work he wanted to be a, naughty that's right he did um and so he could roll his own cigarettes but then eventually and he could drink wine he liked wine he could drink a lot of wine um but eventually it became that he was hands weren't that useful um, and he had to pick up a glass he could only drink out of a plastic glass which he picked up in his teeth and then tipped his head back never lost the ability to drink wine but we've had to adapt about how he was going to be able to do it so yeah so post polio syndrome comes and it just knocks you down and get a few pegs so he didn't even have use of his hands by the end not a lot. He could still write um, right. and he could do some things. He had some tricks that he used to do. I'm doing all sorts of hand movements, right. but he had some tricks. He could peg his hand up with his other hand and he, you know, when to anybody, you find ways around it. Yeah. Um, he's certainly an amazing uh, individual. Um, if I could just change track for a second. Um, you, uh, you also write about what it was like to be a, a child uh, in a family whose parents are having a, a pretty difficult go of their marriage. And, and one of the things that you wrote here, I'll just quote you if that's okay, so, um, some, some scientific-minded people may wince at the idea that a body can manifest emotional illness, but I believe it to be true. My body bore the scars of my parents' miserable marriage. That was, an, that was a really evocative um, paragraph. Can you explain that to us? I think that I had I had childhood croup, um, which is a childhood version of asthma, yep. and I got very very sick often. and um, And I think that that was Robin Archer once said to me that um, uh, asthma is called the silent scream, yep. and and I think that's what I was doing. I think I was just screaming like this is really messed up. I need attention, um, and my way of getting attention was to get sick. And so then everybody had to pay me attention, although, yeah, usually I just went to the hospital and was left there. But um, but it was my way of saying, stop, you have to stop this. And, um, and I think that, you know, that sounds too premeditated and it's not like that mm. of course but i think that that's what my my i was screaming out that i needed some attention and yeah. everybody need everybody else needed to stop screaming you also talk about 
later in your life recollecting some of the scenes uh, with your mum. I, I, please, I hope I don't get this wrong, but yeah. that your, your mum was throwing things, but at the time that had been kind of forgotten in the family, it hadn't been talked about, is that right? Oh, I think that, you know, I think that families deal with stress very differently yeah. and, you know, I was talking to my little brother about this yesterday and he's reading the book at the moment and 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 his you know he had a different mother he had it was a different time he had a totally different experience of being with my father and and his growing up because his his parents were happily married mine were not by the end and so he was saying how different it is and how even some of the things that I described when we were together and he was an adult he still has a different yeah. interpretation of it and I've talked to my brother about it and he was in the chaos yeah. of my first the first marriage with me and he's he sees it differently too you know he has different ways of coping and remembering and I think that that memory is about mechanisms for coping and dealing with things and you remember what you can deal with and you remember things how you want to remember them too sometimes. Yeah, yeah. There's this, there's this, uh, Bobby was a, um, a child psychiatrist in the 60s who wrote a lot for lay audiences um, and he wrote a lot on grief but he also wrote about what it's like to be a child in, a, in a, an almost like a war zone mm. of a marriage and he said um, he's got this famous paper which is knowing what you're not supposed to know and feeling what you're not supposed to feel and it's for a child who doesn't kind of understand what's going on. They still feel it and they express it in a way which is the only way they can. So it might be through uh, developing or, or worsening of illnesses and, and so forth. And I mean, you, you put that really eloquently in the book. What a, the experience as a child being in this, so it was kind of like a war zone, an emotional war zone with them. Yeah. And I think my parents were under a, enormous stress. Yeah. I mean, the stress for my mother not to be able to leave yeah. an unhappy marriage because the consequences of that would be my father would be sent back to yeah. an institution. Yeah. And the pressure that that must have put on her. And, and so we were just a, you know, we were just a tinder, what are those things called, a, you know, a fire ready to be lit yeah. and um, and I don't think that there's any sense of you know I don't want this book to be about blaming anybody mm. because I think that they just did the very best that they could under extraordinary mm. stress and we did as well you know and I I found mechanisms I escaped to other families who were very kindly took me in and you know I found out ways to get away not just by going to hospital but but also by finding people who would who helped me so which you know I think kids can be very inventive yeah, and I, I, just to uh, make the point, your book, at the same time, it seems as if you go to great lengths not to blame anybody, and it's all very good, positive karma, and it's unusual to uh, you know have a book of this length where you, you, you really, it seems genuinely trying to portray and see the the best, I mean, it's lame, I'm saying it lamely, the best in people. You know? I, th- I didn't want it to be an angry book yeah. because I think I, I don't need to read that. I think that it's trying to... I, I have a better understanding about my parents and their relationship yeah. and the stresses that they were under from writing the book because I had to imagine what it must have been like yeah. in a way that I hadn't, you know, as just a person living in the world yeah. with that experience. So it does help you unpick it and see it from different points of view and I think that that's a helpful thing because there's no point saying you did this and you did that yeah. and oh, poor me or anything like that. So I'm glad if that came across. Uh, totally. Um, look, in the remaining seconds that we've got left, um, you didn't spend a lot of time talking about your illness. You did a bit. Um, but I was fascinated to know what, if, if you could just tell us, what was it like when the doctor said, look, I think you've got MS? 
It wasn't pretty. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't pretty. I didn't handle it very well at all because my father had said to me, I'm your fall guy. You can live a big adventurous <laughs> life because I've taken a karmic hit big enough for yeah. our whole family. Yeah. So that's how I lived. So it was not only the fact that, you know, I was told this terrible diagnosis. It was that my father had somehow lied to me and that he, what he said uh, couldn't be true. Right. So I was just so confused and so up upended because I also knew what that life meant when they said to me, do you live in a house with steps? Yeah. That's, that wasn't an innocent question to me. That was a very loaded question. And, and I knew what it meant. So there was no, there was no sense of, oh, well, maybe this will be okay. You know, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. And yes and no. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us um, where to from here, another book, film, I don't know, TV series, what are you going to do? Uh, well, I sent the book off to Nicole Kidman yeah. <laughs> uh, and very much hoping that she and Reese Witherspoon or Jane Campion or someone will, someone will make it into a film. Uh, I've seen this as a very filmic story. I would love my father's... I'd love for people to be able to see what, a, what an iron lung looks like and what it's like to seduce a nurse from an iron lung. I think that's <laughs> a very a potent image. image. Yeah. Yes, I think it's a new rom-com for sure. <laughs> that's right. I am actually writing a not rom-com at the moment. That's, that's my next project. Oh, good for you. Just one really quick thing um i just thought your dad was plucky and i think you're plucky do you think you've inherited his sense of resilience yes i do and i'm very grateful for it yeah go on yeah. beautiful thank you so much carol lowell the book is called diving into glass it's published by uh, penguin and hamish hamilton um it is a fantastic read you've been listening to radiotherapy this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au 